Welcome back to another episode of the Weekly Driver Podcast. My name is James Rea. I'm an automotive columnist for Bay Area News Group, and I edit and publish the website, theweeklydriver.com. My colleague and friend today uh, is Bruce Aldrich. We're in Bruce's backyard. We're two months or so into our outdoor Keeping Our COVID-19 Distance podcasts. And today we have on an expert in the world of how COVID-19 has changed the automotive world. And um, his name is Brian Marks. And so we want to introduce uh, you, to, uh, our guest to you today. And But we know that you're a multifaceted guy. So could you tell us, sir, um, what title you like to be uh, uh, known by? And um, welcome to our podcast. Uh, James and Bruce, thank you for having me. Uh, most people call me Brian mm-hmm. in my various uh, facets of life. Everyone uses my first name. Uh, but currently, I'm at the University of New Haven. I'm in the Pompeo College of Business. I also am a faculty member as a senior lecturer in economics and business analytics. And I also serve as the executive director of the university's entrepreneurship and innovation program. Thank you for um, that. My, my academic credentials, I have a law degree, and I have a doctorate in economics, specifically focusing on the area of political economy. Great. So, well, Brian, we're going to launch into automobiles, transportation, but you're a bike rider. I, I, I used to be a, a big cyclist when I lived out in California. I spent my time... Um, riding between Mountain View and Palo Alto on my bicycle quite a bit. Uh, today, I spend uh, very little time on a bicycle. I, I can let you know, I used to ride a unicycle. And and the benefit of riding a unicycle is I could put it anywhere and no one would take off with it because they Death couldn't proof. ride it. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> that's that's great to know. The um, in, in my past, I um, covered uh, professional cycling for many years, and there was a man in town here. It just triggered a thought that he had one of the 100-year-old or so velo, velo, velo pads, velopedes. Penny Farthing. Yeah, Penny Farthing. And he was so skilled at it that he would get invited to various parades uh, around the country and actually internationally, and he would dress the part in, in old garb. And um, then he took it upon himself to... to um, ride his uh, one-of-a-kind um, velopede uh, across certain countries. So he got quite a bit of notoriety um, back in the day. So I've met some of the people like yourself who are a little bit off-center, shall I say, but uh, good for you for the for the unicycle. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, my claim to fame was I was able to ride my unicycle and juggle a little bit. Oh. Um, but, but it was a tool that I used as I have two kids, and I was able to help them learn how to ride their bicycles by letting them know that if they would learn how to ride a two-wheeler, I would demonstrate how to ride a unicycle. Yes. And so I did that. It was a great way to grow up in our immediate family. Sure. Um, I, the unicycle is now on the shelf, if you will. Okay, good. Very good. Um, well... In, in the automotive world, we all know that things are changing, um, whether it's for personal use, um, some of the shared riding, uh, people buying automobiles in a different way, whether it's online or not buying automobiles, car dealerships. I mean, every facet of the 
automobile world has changed. So maybe a good launching point would be to ask you in your world, academic world, um, what, what do you see as an immediate future or the future of automobile world maybe in a year? And that's a pretty broad stroke of a paintbrush I'm giving you, but give us some perspective on that if you would. So first, I think it's important if we step back a moment and have context. So at the end of 2019, I believe uh, auto sales were tar- ended about a little over 17 million, and we had a series of years in which it was over 17 million. Yes. The estimate for 2020 was a little below 17 million. I think some of the estimates were putting it at 16.8 million. So the expectation for 2020 was the automotive industry would see somewhat of a decline, and, it, and it's small. So I could arguably say it's within a certain margin of error. We started January, February, and then all of a sudden we hit March. And as a result of March, and as we moved into April with the stay-at-home orders, it's new estimates were being brought to bear. And why is that? Well, we have the COVID-19 pandemic, and in the middle of March, many state governors were announcing various strategies and tactics, including social distancing, but stay-at-home orders were put in place. So some of the estimates, in fact, suggested in late March that the automobile industry, the automotive industry, would see a decline to of 50%, about $8 million. I mean, 8 million cars, sorry about that. Um, what we're seeing, and, and I always say to my students as well, let's do our descriptive analysis first, which I'm doing for you. Um, from March to May, we've seen probably about a 1.5 million decline in sales, which corresponds to about from what I understand, could be approximately $40 billion in revenue. With, in the absence of sales, dealerships are getting hammered and may have lost significant revenue opportunities. So we're seeing now some current estimates suggesting that we may end, end the year with a 25% decline. So we're talking about maybe 12 million cars. That's big. That well, well, they did... They did stop production for a while, though. Yes, and, and they needed to stop. So you have the stopping of production. Now we're coming back online. But during this stoppage, we have to remember there was already inventory available. And then we can add another complicating factor is the Hertz bankruptcy. And Hertz had over 500,000 vehicles. Uh, Now, they can't be without their vehicles, but they use Chapter 11 and are using Chapter 11 as a way to uh, shore up their balance sheet by dealing with lease liabilities, whether it's automotive leases or real estate. What we saw is actually two things occurring at the same time, which are bad for almost every industry, including automotive, and that is on the car side, an increase potentially in supply. On the demand side, we're seeing a decrease in demand, a shift at every price point, which puts 
downward pressure on everything, which then impacts the new car market as well, right? So pre-COVID-19, we already saw automotive industry firms issuing incentive programs. Now, I think with everyone standing down and waiting to see, especially as we start standing up in this multi-tier sending waves of re-engagement, if you will, and the governors are opening us up slowly through a phase one, a phase two, a phase three, depending where you live, a phase four. And it will not mean we just flip the switch and the pent up demand that some people are talking about in the automotive space, all that demand will come back and even more so because people didn't buy during the period of time we were in our stay at home, nor uh, did we have an increase in production because of some of the shutting down. Do you think there is a pent up demand? So uh, I'm skeptical. I, I, I think, yes, some people delayed their purchases. But I think in light of uh, the numbers coming out on unemployment, and that's another part of the context in which we're dealing with, the last report was 14.7%. At the time that was released, at the, in the beginning of May for April's unemployment number, I suggested that that number was actually greater than 14.7%. Uh, we're now going to get our April, uh, our May numbers coming in real soon. In fact, Friday, I believe, is when the report is going to be released. And we're going to see numbers very likely closer to, if not more than, 20% unemployment. Wow. Well, when it comes to allocating your dollars, oh, and let me pause for a moment. We're talking about 40 million claims for unemployment. So even if we were to turn things on, given consumer sentiment and the uncertainty, the argument of having pent-up demand, I, while it's optimistic, I think is suspect. Sure. I think that the pent-up demand, it won't be, okay, things are good to go, let's start buying our vehicles again. I think people are going to stand down a little bit People need to shore up their own personal balance sheets. And, and then there'll be time to say, okay, now there's the opportunity um, to buy or lease or finance a vehicle, assuming you can get financing, assuming you can get a lease or, or a loan to pay for that vehicle. Brian, um, this may be crossing the, the lines into politics a little bit, and I certainly don't mean to, but I think it's a... A pertinent question. Do you think that the first round of stimulus help for uh, individuals or, or uh, families um, was of value? And do you think that there will be a second or third uh, round of uh, help for individuals who have you know, lost contracts if they're individual employed or if they are um, lost a job or whatever the situation is and they're entitled to get uh, a stimulus check? Uh, do you think that that's been worthwhile, and do you think the future of that program will help people determine that they want to go get a new vehicle or a new used vehicle? So um, you're actually hitting upon something that's really important here. And the CARES Act, 
when it was passed, it was very, it was very laudable. The, we saw evidence of bipartisanship, although underlying some of it was partisanship. It provided a program, particularly for small businesses, <clears throat> which were to help individuals, the payroll protection program. Yes. Unfortunately, as, as I said, when that program was first announced and released, the devil would be in the details. I seem to be going back to that phrase more than I would like to, but it is truly the case. It was appropriate, given our political philosophy here, to say we're going to provide these funds to the Small Business Administration, which are going to provide it to banks, and the banks who are in the communities are going to lend it out. The problem was, is that the Main Street everyday business person could not quickly or effectively get access to those funds. So did it go well? Not particularly well. When the NBA teams get the money and the local uh, barbershop doesn't? Right. So it it was designed arguably to hit Main Street, but it didn't. And in the absence of hitting Main Street, others were getting it. Um, But it, it had an impact on the local communities. The objective was correct. But I will say, in the absence of that, um, what would have been the alternative, right? So balancing this public health crisis and an economic crisis, we're trying to do what's right for the health and safety of the citizenry, and we need to inject stimulus package or funds to maintain where we are. There was a second interim package that followed on for the payroll protection program, The other things that were going on here as well was the Federal Reserve stepped in, lowered interest rates to 0%, and offered several programs to sort of provide funds to banks to then provide it to businesses through special loan programs. And one loan program that was announced was the Main Street Lending Program. And I've said this more than once, it's a misnomer. It's not for Main Street. The minimum dollar amount for that program was $500,000. Oh, boy. Uh, That's not going to help Main Street and therefore not help the consumers who are going to buy automobiles in the near term. The interest rate was LIBOR plus three. It was a four-year term. But The Federal Reserve is constrained because that's the monetary policy. Chairman Powell did appear uh, before Congress and and essentially said, the Fed will do what it can do. And this Main Street lending program is being done through a special purpose vehicle. And I said, is being done. It's still not operational. He announced it in early April. It's now early June. That program has not gone into effect. Gotcha. Yeah, we're waiting well, on the government. We're still waiting. <laughs> yes. Right. And, and what's really important to recognize is we, the government has an important role here. And the longer we wait, the more certain businesses w- will simply not recover. And with that, 
um, that will have an impact to bring it back to the automotive industry, have an impact on the demand side as well as the supply side and the supply chain. Sure. And then cascading to real estate as well. Well, the other thing that some people may not be talking about is research and development in the automotive space. Right? Some of the operations, we're trying to maintain our cash so we can operate. And what will, how will that impact, if you will, research and development, which brings you into a notion of uh, autonomous driving vehicles. Yes. So they're slowed down on that uh, development, is what you're saying? Well, potentially slowed down. I will say um, uh, I was once told challenges and problems create opportunities. And in bad times, innovation is crucial, and small business and other businesses during difficult times, if you could be innovative, it's a way to sustain, but it's, are you prepared to take that risk? So in the autonomous driving vehicle space or other innovations, will firms be prepared? I think some will. Some will try to hedge. And some will forecast and be better positioned to move forward. What do you think, Brian, that uh, the percentage of money, development money, going to electric cars and or hybrid cars versus autonomous car um, technology? Is it like 50-50 to both or 90% to electric and hybrid? Do you know? Do you have a sense of that? I I wish I could tell you. and give you percentages. I have, I'm aware investment has been increasing in both avenues. One thing that some of my colleagues would raise a flag on is the notion of hybrids and electric. Given the price of gasoline, what incentive is there to move to Not these much. other seats in which to fuel our vehicles? But autonomous driving vehicles and that technology um, will exist without regard to the price of fuel. There's that motivation, there's that incentive, if you will, um, where I think we, we may see a slowdown unless, and this goes back to some politics, we see a change in political philosophy and people say, um, Yes, we recognize gasoline prices have gone down, and we're going to encourage an increase in those prices by putting a tax on that. I don't think anyone today would find it palatable, if you will, to have a tax on gasoline because it's generally viewed as somewhat regressive in nature. It impacts those who have to drive and uh notwithstanding income. And and so right now, I, I doubt there's going to be that move, especially as we're trying to restart our economy to to put a tax on. Well, that's good to hear. I don't, want it, I don't want more taxes. No, that's good to hear. Um, two other quick areas. There are uh, currently, you know, there's one individual, Elon Musk, and there are two companies, predominantly Uber and Lyft, that have, you know, changed the automotive industry, um, whether you agree with uh, Mr. Musk and his cars and his other philosophies and his other projects or not is 
uh, is not the issue for me, but what is of an issue is how will our current situation change what he's providing? And number two, do you think, uh, have any perspective on how the public will react when things loosen up a little bit, so to speak, on their use of Uber and Lyft and, and maybe some other uh, rideshare programs that aren't as prominent but that are out there? How, how do you feel about either one of those or both of those? So when we let, let's talk about ride sharing first. Um, and, and again, that I always find that one um, somewhat of a misnomer as well. Um, when we talk ride sharing, we're, we were basically talking about two strangers getting in the car and sharing a ride together. Yes. Excluding the driver for a moment. Uh, the taxi cab industry had been doing that for a long time as well, except not publicizing it at the way Uber and Lyft did uh, when, we, when we started moving down this path. Uber and Lyft, in my opinion, it's a taxi service. So we're looking at ride sharing and we're calling it ride sharing, but it's a taxi service. It's a vehicle for hire. Yeah, the next is. question will be, and will people feel comfortable getting into a driver's car, whether it's Uber driver, a Lyft driver, a yellow cab? Will those be the preferred alternatives to hopping on a subway, taking bus transportation? I think if, if we want to look for a silver lining someplace, there is a possibility that people are going to be hesitant to travel in vehicles that contain large numbers of people. And therefore, we may see a shift as when I was in the Bay Area. Yeah, I drove up from Mountain View, Palo Alto to San Francisco uh, and often with some other people who I know were within my cohort, uh, will people be willing to drop, uh, jump on that mass transportation? So with the right dynamics and cost components, a, a shared vehicle, if you will, may be a viable alternative and therefore help the automotive industry. But I think ultimately people will only feel comfortable going into a vehicle of, with the label Uber or Lyft or some other share ride, or for that fact, the regular taxi cab, um, provided they have comfort in the notion that the environment in which they're stepping into is, is one that will not increase their risk unnecessarily to, let's say, COVID-19. I see. And, I see. And, and that is... I mean, to me, that's the whole thing. Once we have a vaccine, that will change a lot of people's dynamics. Not many people remember the pandemic of 1968-69, which was about two years. And uh, look, we've gone ahead and moved forward. Now, there were different views and philosophies back in the late 60s. But it is interesting, just as a little sidebar here, I spent a lot of time, and it's a good way to segue to our friend Elon Musk and Tesla, but in the 60s, I spent a lot of time looking up in space. I thought maybe I'd be an astronaut. Um, I was fascinated by the lunar program. 
my father did some work as a subcontractor for NASA. What a natural thing for a kid who was interested in math and science and how it all fit together. One little human dynamic, which was a problem. I found out I was claustrophobic. Not <laughs> yeah. a good thing for someone who wants to go out into space or for that fact wants to go scuba dive. So we took that off the table. But if we look what went on in the late 60s, we had a pandemic. We had space exploration going to the moon. And unfortunately, we had civil unrest with respect to civil rights and the war in Vietnam. Fast forward today, we have a pandemic, which is very different from the one from the late 60s, because we still don't have a vaccine. People forget there was, ultimately a vaccine was implemented more targeted to what was associated with that pandemic, but we, we don't have that solution today yet. And we went up, first commercial flight from a commercial enterprise into space with NASA astronauts. So we're back in space. And unfortunately, we have civil unrest. Yes. Maybe nothing has changed in 50 years. Does that make still make you, though, because you mentioned we have been able to move forward. Can I take from what you're saying that you correlated those two parts, you know, 50 plus years ago to today, um, that you that you remain an optimist? I am all... Um, I, I've been called a Pollyanna in hell. Uh, <laughs> I love it. That's great. The big one. Uh, I am always, I'm cautiously optimistic. Yes. I'm optimistic at a university, and I, I see the innovation, the entrepreneurial drive of my students. And that gives me solace and hope for what's coming next. I always tell my students, remember, my generation screwed many things up. Your generation will fix it all. And, and they generally nod their head, and I'm optimistic about that. Uh, but I also remind them, uh, remember to be humble because you too will screw things up. Um, so I am optimistic. I'm optimistic about innovation and entrepreneurship. Elon Musk has given us a, 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 um, a roadmap there, if you will, with this recent launch of SpaceX. He, he pushed the Tesla um, vehicles along the way. I think sale, it will be interesting to see whether he will receive some benefit from S SpaceX. Will that translate to additional sales of the Tesla? M maybe we'll see that. Um, but it, it will be an interesting dynamic, at least in the near term. I would not say to people, Oh, don't worry, we're going to get rid of all gasoline-powered um, vehicles. I don't think that's happening in the near term. Okay. Do you think uh, getting, uh, getting autonomous cars is something that's going to happen in the near term? Do you think they're getting any closer, or what, what have you heard? So um, I think we're getting closer with autonomous driving vehicles. There is um, something that I'm fundamentally concerned about, and that is information security uh, of those vehicles. Just like with COVID-19, for everything to return, we need to have trust, faith, and confidence in social distancing, in monitoring, and in testing. Well, with autonomous driving vehicles, we won't have to worry about social distancing. 
but we need to have trust, faith, and confidence in the infrastructure of that vehicle to make and drive, as one would hope um, the vehicle will do, without interference from some external events, such as a hacker. And several years ago, there was a, uh, a, a program that demonstrated with a vehicle that a hacker could interfere with the braking system of a vehicle. And that's with someone driving it. They were able to hack in and interfere. Wouldn't at, that be great? That, yeah, wow. At, yeah, not very comforting. So at that time, I, I wrote something that basically said, um, we need, uh, we talk about privacy by design, we need security by design. And with autonomous driving vehicles, it's one thing to set up the algorithms for the drive. It's another thing to ensure the integrity of that system. And I think that's what's going to be crucial to see autonomous driving vehicles uh, all over the place. Gotcha. Until that time, I would suggest that it, it's we may say uh, um, assisted driving using information technology, but we're still going to want that override and, and annual control. Yep, makes sense. Makes sense. Brian, uh, I would, I'm sure Bruce would agree, we'd like to spend um, the rest of the day and tomorrow and the rest of the week talking with you because uh, you just filled us full of knowledge and trying to absorb it. But for now, um, this will be a good breaking point for this episode of our podcast. And so we want to thank you for all of the different areas you've uh, Boy, you've answered a bunch of questions for me, and I've learned a lot in the last 30, 35 minutes. So, um, Brian, thank you very much for uh, being our guest. Your, your list of credentials and what you do is very impressive, and I'm sure that the students at the University of New Haven uh, uh, enjoy your lectures and get a lot of out of it, and, and maybe they will have the answers to, to the things that we've screwed up. I, I'm assuming that we're of the same generation, so uh, same age bracket, so... Thank you to Brian Marks for being our guest today on the Weekly Driver Podcast. We appreciate your time and, and your expertise. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Brian. And James and Bruce, thank you for having me. Okay. Take care. Cheers. Be safe. Bye now. Bye.